Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Education for Sustainable Democracy. I'm Brett Levy. This episode is part two of my conversation with John Silva and Miriam Romace of the News Literacy Project. In this segment of our discussion, we talk about how misinformation spreads so easily and how certain media literacy practices can help to combat it. We also discuss the News Literacy Project's free programs for teachers, plans for the future, and how they afford to do all the work they do at no cost to educators. Part one of this interview is posted on the podcast feed. And thank you all so, so much for listening. I really appreciate your interest in these issues. You're part of a growing community of listeners from all around the country and the world. There are listeners in all regions of the U.S. and in 13 other countries, including Japan, Thailand, Australia, Brazil, and France. And the main way people have been learning about the show is through you. So thank you so much for helping to spread the word. Please keep the momentum going by telling a friend or colleague about the podcast and sharing with them one of your favorite episodes like the one featuring Diana Hess, Amber Joseph, Jane Lowe, Ethan Lowenstein. And if you're a teacher educator, please consider including some episodes in your course syllabi. I use some in my own courses, and they can be a great supplement to course readings. And as always, you can find links to all of the episodes and much more at esdpodcast.org. That's esdpodcast.org. Now, here's part two of my interview with John Silva and Miriam Romace. Could you talk a bit about lateral reading? Lateral reading is sort of an academic way of saying, uh, open up a new browser tab and Google some details, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Sam Weinberg and Sarah McGrew from the Stanford Graduate School of Education have been doing research into what they call online civic reasoning. And what they were trying to determine is, you know, how are we teaching young people how to evaluate information and evaluate sources? Are those working? And are there better ways of of doing it? So for example, they would show them, one classic example uh, is a picture of uh, daisies that uh, seem to have been deformed. And the caption of that image uh, says that those are daisies growing next to the Fukushima nuclear power plant in Japan, which had a, a catastrophic meltdown some years ago. The question that they put to students was, does this provide strong evidence that these daisies are growing in, as a result of the radiation from the Fukushima nuclear power plant? Hmm. It doesn't, right? It's just a picture of daisies with a caption. There's no evidence that connects the two. But a, a majority of students looking at that and said, oh, yeah, that's evidence. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. And so part of it is like they don't know they're not questioning what they see. You know, they're accepting mm-hmm. things at face value. And a lot of the ways that we were teaching students was using checklists. One famous one is the is the crap test mm-hmm. is that there's a checklist. It's like, OK, can you, you know, can you find the caption? Go to the about page looking for details and you know, sort of staying on that source. We call it reading vertically. Mm-hmm. What they found in their research is that it is actually much more effective when you want to question something to leave that site, open up a new browser tab and start searching for the details, right? And so one of my favorite examples is the Great Pacific Northwest Tree Octopus. Um, there is a website that talks about uh, this endangered creature called the Great Pacific Northwest Tree Octopus. And if you go to the website, it looks like a science, a science-y type website. And it talks about this, this, this creature and its habitat and you know, these things. And if you, if you go through a checklist, it's very difficult to determine from a checklist and just from that site whether or not it's authentic. 
Mm-hmm. Whereas if you open up a new browser tab and you Google the Great Pacific Northwest Tree Octopus, you learn very quickly that it's it's a hoax website that was created as a teaching tool. So that's what mm-hmm. lateral reading is. Lateral reading is like move off of what you're doing and start searching and verifying information. Mm-hmm. If you find information that says that it's authentic, then you can go back to it and continue reading it. But if you find information that it's not, then you can discard it and you can find something else. And it seems like an important part of that would be actually exploring in another browser window something about that particular site mm-hmm. you know, is there is this a valid source uh, right and, and you know that's the other thing is like if there's so much there's so many other ways that it applies right so um for example you, you see uh people spreading false information about the vaccine the covid19 vaccine i saw one recently where it said this is it was from a doctor and he's he's like spreading all this stuff about how the vaccine's not safe, the vaccine's gonna, you know, alter your DNA, the vaccine's gonna, mm. all these falsehoods about the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I Googled the doctor, turns out he's a chiropractor and he is currently studying homeopathic medicine, right? Mm-hmm. So he's in no way qualified to talk about immunology, virology, the development of, you know, the science behind vaccines. But by using his title as a doctor, he is a doctor, he is a doctor of chiropractic. Right. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. You, you wouldn't know that from his Twitter account, from from anything you see, you know, in his post. You wouldn't know that unless you actually Google him. So that's where lateral reading is, is such a it's a simple but very effective tool for just learning more context. Mm-hmm. The Pew Research Center had a study that two thirds of Americans get at least some news from social media. Mm-hmm. So majority of our population is relying on social media where anybody can create and post something mm-hmm. also. So applying that idea of, oh, okay, let's dig a little bit deeper, open a new mm-hmm. tab, do a little bit of search, that can go a long mm-hmm. way to make sure that we're not accidentally sharing information that is inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a, at the heart of what a lot of what we're trying to, to teach young people is that it just takes like just two minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, to ver- you know, less than two minutes to verify something and taking a little bit of time to learn some context before you use something or respond to it. So if you look at an image or a headline, what did it make you feel, right? Like, how are you reacting? Mm-hmm. Check in mm-hmm. with yourself, mm-hmm. right? Like, did it make you raise your fist in mm-hmm. righteous indignation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Are, are you angry? Are you curious? Because the misinformation also seeps in relying on our mm-hmm. emotions taking over rather than the rational thinking, you know, and thinking through. And, and of course, uh, the role of emotion mm-hmm. in, in teens and young people, right? Because that rational part is, you know, isn't developed until, well, fully developed until the mid-20s. There's also a potential social element to it. You know, if, if I find this information, it aligns with my confirmation biases, and then I send it to 10 friends, then I will be the one who shared this information with them and it builds a bond between us. So I feel like there could be a bit of a connection that that young people are seeking, you know, people who are, you know, social, looking to connect with others, especially in the days of lockdowns. One of the things that, you know, I I talk about this with educators, but it's something that we, we often forget is that humans are, we are very social creatures by nature, right? Mm -hmm. And, And one of the things that has always been part of being human is storytelling. Mm-hmm. Our earliest histories were passed down through storytelling, you know, well before, you know, well before the invention of writing. And so 
storytelling is is one of the ways that we connect with others and it, it fills a very important emotional need when you look at things like early myths and legends storytelling was also part of how we make sense of the world mm-hmm. um, because we want the world to make sense and so when we when we get a piece of information that we we find very interesting it's just part of our nature that we want to share it with other people like oh, i found this interesting thing what do you think and how does it fit with other things social media takes that and turns it up to 11 right because social media gives us the ability to share that interesting thing with pretty much anyone and everyone but likewise social media has kind of conditioned us to overshare if you think about all the things that we share on social media, all the minutia of our lives that we, we take pictures of, that we document, you know, all the little things, all the little updates that we share with, we send it out into the ether of social media. That's part of, that's part of our social, uh, you know, our social nature and social media, you know, gives us that mechanism. And it's actually been great for us during the pandemic. Imagine how much worse being locked up at home would have been if we did not have the ability to maintain connections with friends and family, mm-hmm. do virtual happy hours, right? To have video calls with with our with our loved ones, and to be able to send images and videos to one another, right? Social media really helped us in a lot of ways. The other edge to that sword, though, is that as we dove deeper into social media, we then started being exposed more and more to the dark side of social media, right? We started connecting with people who were sharing conspiratorial ideas and spreading these, these falsehoods. Like that's how the conspiracy theories about the origins of COVID-19 happen. And the idea that it's spread, it's being spread by 5g and the vaccine's going to implant a microchip and population reduction and all of those things. And we see it on TikTok where people are make, making these videos where it looks like a magnet is sticking to their arm as if there's a, a microchip. Mm-hmm. There's been some great aspects of it, but also that's that's kind of the, the dark side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there's so much to think about on these topics and so much for all of us to learn and to continue to learn as media continue to change. I'm wondering if you could talk about more ways that teachers can learn about these resources and these strategies. I know that mm-hmm. you have a lot on your website. That's great. But you also do in-person workshops, virtual workshops. Could you talk about how any teachers, curriculum specialists, or administrators could leverage your resources more fully? As of right now, all of our all of our offerings are virtual. Although we are we are starting to make plans for in-person learning um, in the, in the new school year. So one of the things that we that we can we can work with um, educators on is district level training. So we can coordinate with a school district to bring some training to, to the educators first about learning about news literacy and news literacy concepts, and then introducing the resources that we have and, and how it can be integrated in the curriculum. So usually when we do that, it's, it's, a, it's a school district that is trying to implement news literacy more formally in various curriculum areas. And we work with the district, we work with the educators to provide that training. Hmm. We also offer throughout the year news lit camps. That is a day of professional learning where we partner with a, a news organization. So for example, just yesterday, um, we had a national news lit camp with the Wall Street Journal. And we had educators from across the country and even some from uh, other parts of the world 
in, a, in these virtual sessions, learning from Wall Street Journal journalists. So it's about news literacy concepts, but also, you know, learning about bias, learning about, you know, covering breaking news events, how news judgments are made, the role of investigative journalism. Those will be hopefully more often in person next year. And usually when we do those, it's a very local event. So one that we did was with Rockford, Illinois Public Schools and the Rockford Register Star. Um, so it was local reporters, local educators, and we brought mm -hmm. them together for a day of learning. We will be doing a fall webinar series with the new school year, which will be basically an overview of news literacy concepts and uh, teaching strategies, um, which will be entirely focused on you know, the news literacy project. So people will be able to sign up for that series, learn about some key uh, concepts in news literacy and how to teach it. We haven't scheduled that yet, but that's something that we're going to be putting on the calendar probably in September. Mm -hmm. Newslet Camp, if I may. We are planning uh, uh, 10 next year for, for the coming school year. 10 Newslet Camps. Mm -hmm. Maybe 11. So, and at least two of them will be virtual. Mm -hmm. So uh, educators from anywhere can can attend. Great. Yeah, really looking forward to that. And then the other thing that, we're, that we are building so we have, it's a fairly new initiative that's called Newslit Nation. Mm -hmm. um, we are building a community of educators who are interested in and, and who are already teaching news literacy. So we're building um, this online space where they can connect and collaborate and share resources, share best practices, learn from one another, also help us in advocacy and outreach. So we are trying to bring all the educators who are doing news literacy in one way or another so that we can support them and we can help increase you know, the implementation of news literacy around the country. And that's also part of our website at newslit.org. Mm -hmm. You can just click for educators and it just everything you could possibly need is right there as a teacher. Okay. Newslit.org and then click on the for educators tab. Mm -hmm. Great. So let me ask this because you're doing so much. I'm wondering how you get your funding. So we are a national, nonpartisan, nonprofit organization. Our funders are varied. We have a development team that works really hard at working with, with foundations, and the transparency of that is on our website as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, who supports us? Uh, the Knight Foundation is, uh, is an active uh, supporter, mm -hmm. which we are very grateful for. The Clarman Family Foundation... Down Jones Foundation, Smart News Inc., News Corp. So all we have all of this, right? Because we're asking for uh, sourcing and transparency, right? So mm -hmm. we, we practice what we mm -hmm. preach. Mm -hmm. It's all it's all right up front mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. And you know, also not just the big places, right? But individuals, mm -hmm. right? Um, so we have donation drives, a spring drive every once in a while, and because this is. I think this is such, what we do is such a core issue, mm -hmm. right? That affects everybody, mm -hmm. right? Like how you make your decisions that there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of support. One of the things that's we're also very fortunate with our funders um, is that they recognize the importance of making our, our resources free for educators. Mm -hmm. A lot of, a lot of districts are, are it's difficult uh, to be able to bring in new resources and, so mm -hmm. we try to provide everything, everything free. So, you know, taking a day of professional learning, using technology, downloading our resources. So they recognize, A, the importance of news literacy education, 
um, but also they recognize the importance of making it accessible for educators across the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. There is a cost to creating the content and the programs and right, like the, keeping the lights on, but we don't pass that on to educators mm-hmm. and schools. Right? That's why we have these grants and why we're so grateful to our funders mm-hmm. to be able to do this. That is fantastic. What do you think the future holds for the News Literacy Project? How do you think that you will build on what you've already done? So we are actually going to be developing a new strategic plan this year. We're going to look to do more professional learning events. We're trying to expand our offerings for the general public. We'll be adding more content to the Technology Virtual Classroom. One project that I'm that I'm excited to get into eventually is to create a more formalized professional learning platform for educators to do on demand, create a a certification program for educators, you know, to learn how to teach news literacy. So our goal is really to continue to expand our offerings, but also expand our reach and to make news literacy part of the American education experience. We're also probably going to be looking into doing, working with other organizations to advocate for news literacy standards, especially as part of civic standards. Great. Thank you so much to both of you. I really appreciate the time to talk to you and the work that you're doing is so important. And I hope that you keep doing it for a long time and that teachers continue to benefit from it. Thank you for having us. It's, it's really a pleasure. Thank you so much, Brett. That was Miriam Romes and John Silva of the News Literacy Project. You can find part one of this interview on the podcast feed. And to learn more about the News Literacy Project, you can visit www.newslit.org. And this is Education for Sustainable Democracy. I'm Brett Levy. To learn more about the show and to check out other episodes, please visit esdpodcast.org. That's esdpodcast.org. To help support the show, please subscribe, like us on Facebook, and share an episode with a friend or two. Thank you so much and have a great day.